0: Again, we come before you, Lord. We thank you for good, Mm. old friends. We see many of them here tonight, Father. There are many of them being formed here tonight. Uh, Lord, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for leaving us uh, who you are in written form. Uh, Father, we thank you for giving us what we need for life mm-hmm. and for godliness. Lord, we pray that we would just knock another chip off of it tonight. Father, we know we don't get this all in one night, mm-hmm. Lord, but uh, but we also know that we build precept upon precept, mm-hmm. brick upon brick. Father, I pray that we would uh, that we would be um, uh, uh, pushed a little bit tonight to uh, to, uh, to 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 comprehend more of your word. Father, again, I thank you for each and every soul that's represented here tonight, Lord. I just pray a special blessing on each and every one of them. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So I don't know if it's because you guys missed it for a month <laughs> and a half. I don't know if it's because Tuesday might be a better night. I don't know. But uh, we seem to have a really particularly good-looking crowd tonight.
1: <laughs> you it, Thank you.
2: Uh-huh. I, I, I feel, agree. I don't know how many of you are Rich Mullins listeners.
1: Yeah. but Yes, sir.
2: There's one of the CDs that I listen to from him every now and then, and the way he opened the recording of that CD is the way <coughs> I feel tonight. So if I can quote him. I uh, I, before we begin, I just, I just if you'll allow me to make this, this disclaimer, everybody, I'm barely ready to do this.
1: You'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. And they all said,
2: well, that's how we all feel. Uh, but then they produced an excellent album. so.
1: You will be um, just fine, Mr. Bosworth. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Thank you. So, <clears throat> tonight, I guess I'd like to start by just simply saying... Our topic, according to our survey of Bible doctrine, has come to what is sometimes called divine election, and uh, if you have come tonight thinking that we are going to resolve all the questions regarding this topic, you're going to leave sadly disappointed. Uh, There are theologians, much more knowledgeable, much more godly than myself, who have Frustrated themselves to no end trying to end the questions that come regarding our topic for tonight. So, little old me is not going to do what they have not been able to do, but I hope through the help of the Holy Spirit to lend perspective to the topic that we're here to talk about tonight to help us. As we continue to wrestle with this the rest of our days Till we can see the Lord face to face And look from the other side of the great tapestry That he's weaving through time And get his perspective uh, on the other side To begin with then, having said all that I'd like to just talk to you a little bit about An experience I had in high school (coughs) So many years ago (coughs) Uh, It was actually one of my favorite classes in high school uh, it was kind of where math met science, and those were my two favorite classes. And uh, it actually showed that there was a purpose for all that math you've been learning all those years. And uh, so I really got into it. I had an excellent teacher, and uh, I'll never forget after months of studying. We went through from the beginning the stuff that everybody does you know, you have different things, objects, and I brought a little car tonight to kind of illustrate. Uh, the stuff that we did, and uh, I can't see some of you, so I'm going to stand for this part. Uh, we would have different objects, like a car that was traveling, and we would do word problems, right? And it said, well, if, if the car left point A traveling at 60 miles an hour for two hours, how far did it go? And, <laughs> and you would know that rate times time equals distance, and so you would plug in the numbers to mix with the formulas of the one that you needed, and you say, well, let's see, the rate is... Sixty miles per hour, thank you. See look at you all that you quelched the whole interactive thing. All right. Sixty miles an hour. The time was two hours and so you multiply the two together and you get uh, okay, well, yeah, it's, summer needs to end. Get yeah, back to yeah. school, all right? 120 miles. Okay, so rate times time equals distance. And any kind of particle, whether it was the bullet coming out of a gun, whether it was you know the, the football that you tossed up in the air, and then you would measure how far it went and how fast it would take, and if it was falling off, if it was a ball falling off of a cliff, how fast it would go with gravity pulling it to the ground. But all of those equations were meant to deal with particles of matter that were moving through space from point A to point B, and you could measure them with all of these formulas. And so we spent months, as maybe some of you have done, studying in physics the way particles moved through space. Then we came to a whole new section, which was actually pretty fascinating, talking about Waves. You know, we went and looked at the water and how, you know, it would with the waves and, and you couldn't you couldn't see through it quite the same, but it would carry things along. And, and then there were sound waves and 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 waves operate differently than particles. Right now, this this uh, extension cord that I brought tonight is made up of a whole lot of particles. All right. But if I was to ask <laughs> Mr. Recorder here to hold the other end of my extension cord here, see. The way a wave works is there's not a particle leaving point A at my end, going to point B to his end, like we did with the car. But in a wave, it moves along some sort of medium and goes from point A to point B. Now, I started the wave here at point A. I'm sorry if you're not a science person, but this is important to our study tonight. Deep (laughs) theological (laughs) ramifications to your physics assignments from school, right? But you see, when I send the wave from point A to point B, The end of this cord where the wave started did not travel to point B. Somehow, the atoms and the electrons and the molecules here at this end of the extension cord allowed a wave to pass through it to the next particle next to it, and that wave moved through this medium to the other side. But the actual cord itself did not change its location. And so you have a whole different set of equations to try to deal with waves Than you had with particles, and so we spent months looking at radio waves. And you know why is it when the car it has is honking its horn coming towards you, and when it goes away from you, suddenly the horn starts going, and the pitch changes. Right? It's all about waves and the way that they move through the medium that they're in. And so then you have to answer the other philosophical question, right? If the tree falls in the forest and no one's there, does it really make a noise? That's another. That's another discussion later. All right, but all that to say this: waves and particles, two different things. Then we set all those things aside, and we were going to study light. And so, my professor asks this question: We get light from the sun. It takes eight minutes. And however many seconds to get here at the speed of light. So when light leaves the sun traveling to earth, is it a particle that leaves the surface of the sun, travels from point A to point B, earth, and lands on earth? And that's what I'm seeing and taking in when I'm laying out there on the beach. Or... Is it a wave of energy that is passing through the medium of space, but no space and no actual particles are transferred, but this, this wave of energy and heat is passing through space and taking all that time to come to Earth? So, we took a vote. How many people think <laughs> that light is a particle? Okay? And how many people think that light is a wave? And of course, the class was divided. And so... He said, well, listen, there's one way to find out. Let's plug in the numbers and the equations and see what happens. So we get out our rate times time equals distance, and we get out all those little particle uh, 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 formulas, and we start plugging in numbers, and lo and behold, <laughs> it worked. Billy and I were right. It's a particle, right? And the class is cheering. At least half the class was cheering. And the other class is kind of feeling <laughs> like, oh, I guess I guess wrong. So then the professor says, well, well hold on now. If that's true. If we plug all these information into the wave formulas, it should be false. So let's just verify our information. So we sit back, back down and we go through the little formulas and you plug in the information from light, is it a wave? And you get to the end and you find out, whoop!
1: It is a way. <laughs>
2: and so then the other half of the class is like,
1: yeah, see, we told you, man. You, you,
2: you, you, you. And then see this little this little mini rebellion breaks out in class because everyone starts say no, but we were right too, you know. And then he had to stop and say, no, wait, just a second. This is not possible. A. <coughs> hey, if it is a particle, then something leaves point A, travels to point B, and arrives there. It has departed from where it left. It's no longer there. And yet, at the same time, it's, how, how could it be both? And the class just came to a silence as we tried to grapple with the fact that there was these two laws of nature that God put into the world that He created, where this is true, and this is true, but they're opposed to each other. It's not possible, and yet it is. This is something that scientists have come to call an antinomy, antinomos. It's a Greek word. Anti meaning against, nomos meaning law, right? Deuteronomy. Right. The second giving of the law, Deuteronomos and antinomy two laws that seem to be against each other. And yet equally true. And there's no way around it. Scientists have to when when they're dealing with light and they need to study it, if they're dealing with some sort of particle type situation, they've got to use the particle formulas. When you're dealing with the fact that light is transferring energy and it's actually operating as a wave, they've got to use the wave formulas. But it's still a particle. And it's still a wave. And there's not a person on the planet who can explain how that's true at the same time. Why are we bringing this up in our theological discussion? Tonight, we find ourselves, as I see it, with a theological antinomy. We have two biblically verifiable truths. You look at one and you trace some scriptures and you say, okay, God chooses people for salvation. You come over here and you look at the Bible and you see where God says, whoever believes in him shall be saved. And how do you put those two together? That's where we run into trouble. And uh, the same way that scientists are expected to deal with the contradiction. (laughs) We can't change light. It is what it is. And so we've got to somehow accept that uncomfortable contradiction in our minds. Is light contradicted with itself? No. Hey, listen, that sun's been shining for thousands of years and it's never been dimmer because we can't understand how it can be a particle and wave at the same time. It doesn't depend on our understanding. And, you know, God is who He is. And He hasn't asked... Our permission to be bigger than our minds can contain. He just is. And so he's asking us to trust him. To accept what we perceive as contradictions. And still trust in who he is. Because like the sun that faithfully shines upon this planet. And we can predict a lot of things about it. Hey, they can tell you even now what time it's going to rise tomorrow morning here in Miami. What time is it going to set? Uh, we I don't know. You, Channel 7 or Channel 10. They'll tell you on their website, right? You can look it up. But, you know, God's not waiting for us to understand those things. He's, he's been who he's, He is, who He's always been, and who He always will be. And so He's given us a glimpse of who He is, but it's beyond us. Which brings us really to our first passage for tonight in Isaiah 55. Very familiar, right? <laughs> Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Do I have any volunteer who'd like to read? Got to prime the pump a little bit for some verbal participation here. You got it there, Jason? Go ahead.
1: <laughs>
2: Isaiah 55, 8 and
1: 9.
2: <coughs> if, we, if, if someone else would like to read, you can look up 1 John 1, 5. Yeah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God has told us, listen, as you consider me, let me just tell you up front, you know, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways, and we're not going to be able to attain to who he is. We're not going to be able to fully grasp. And you know what? That is an encur- that's frustrating to me, but that's encouraging to me. To think that if there was a God that could be fully understood by my puny little brain, He wouldn't be the God that He is, that I need Him to be for all that is beyond me. But the God of the Bible truly is way beyond us. And I think it's also very interesting that if God was going to put into our universe these antinomies like light, that when you read 1 John 1 5, he says, Who's got it? Anyone want to read that one? Leah? This is, this is a message we have heard to that,
1: to that God is light and in him there's no darkness at
2: all. Isn't that beautiful? God says, By the way, I'm light, there's no darkness in me. So, if there's going to be anything in this world that he's going to create an antinomy over, it would make sense that it would be something that's supposed to remind us of him.
1: <clears throat> right.
2: And he says, listen, there's no darkness in me. Now, now I struggle with this within myself, right? Because, I, I mean, I, I, I believe that most of you have heard these arguments before. The, I shouldn't say arguments. These truths. That, well, let, let's take a look at one here, right? Uh, Ephesians one, verse four.
1: <clears>
2: Have <throat> okay, we'll volunteer. To read don't. Jen. Ephesians one,
0: verse four even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless
2: before Him and love. Right. Very plainly, it says God chose us. He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him. So you get down this discussion of how God chooses people whom He saves. And as you try to reason out this truth, you come to, well... Are you telling me then, if he's choosing some to be saved, he's then choosing some not to be saved. He's choosing to send people to hell. And then all of a sudden you're you're forced to jump to the other of this parallel track where you're saying, but doesn't the Bible say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? Right. If God is not willing that any should perish, how can he choose some to be saved and then he's leaving some to be lost? And yet he says he wants them all to be saved. And you, you immediately are thrown back and forth between these two truths. And uh, uh, I, I, when, when friends of mine have been uh, uh, wrestling with it themselves, challenging me with my own thoughts, with theirs, and, 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 I, and I'm provoked to say, No! That can't, and, and, and it's, it's I, I don't know how to reconcile these things in my mind. But um, uh, uh, this is the kind of thing that we're dealing with tonight. And, and what we want to do is take a look at um, both of these truths and then talk about how do you deal with an antinomy and talk about the dangers and, uh, and things like that. If I, if I can just take a step back and uh, talk about something that can be confusing if we don't if we don't mention it, there are things in the Bible that are not an antinomy, but can also be confusing. Okay, as an example, let's just turn to one. 2 Corinthians twelve ten. Second Corinthians twelve ten. Second okay. Corinthians twelve ten. Now Paul has been uh, telling the believers in Corinth that because of the greatness of the revelation that God gave him. That God allowed him to, uh, he allowed Satan to give Paul a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that is, but it was something that was a difficulty, perhaps painful, in the life of Paul to have to deal with. But God said, "No, listen, uh, my grace is sufficient for you. I'll help you through that." And he refused to take it away, although he prayed three times. But this is what he concludes in verse ten. If I have a reader for that. Second Corinthians twelve ten. Go ahead, Chelsea. Therefore, I
1: take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, and persecutions, and distresses. For, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong.
2: Okay, thank you. So he says, you know, I, 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 I take pleasure in these infirmities because it's causing him to lean on Christ and Christ is becoming greater to him. But then he adds this little phrase at the end, which I want to key in on, where he says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That we call a paradox, not an antinomy. A <clears throat> paradox is an appearance of contradiction. But really, it's the contradiction is not in the facts or truths themselves, but in the words that are chosen that makes it appear to be contradictory. Right? He could have stated this, this fact... In other words, which would not be so contradictory, right? He could have said something like um, the sorrow... Oh, wrong one. He could have said that the Lord strengthens him most when he's most conscious of his natural infirmity, right? When he feels at the most extreme of his weakness, God shows himself to be the most strong. There's no contradiction in our thoughts in that. But when he says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong, that has an appearance of contradiction. We call that a paradox. It's a verbal play of words, but it doesn't actually cause two truths to become in conflict with each other. All right? The Bible's full of paradoxes. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Humble yourself inside of the Lord, he'll lift you up. You know, and uh, If you want to be great, you must make yourself servant of all. And there's lots of these, these paradoxical ideas, but, but they're paradoxical because of the words used, which are normally in opposition or separate from each other, and the way God brings them together, it, 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 it's, it's just marveling to, to ponder. But um, that's not the same thing we're dealing with here. We're, we're actually talking about Truths that are equally true, but when you lay them out side by side, they seem irreconcilable one to another. And it's not a perception. They're both realities and we're forced to deal with them. And so the tendency is this. And this is this is where we get ourselves into trouble. Okay. Um, Number one, we don't want to accept it. Right. We we want to be able to have books like this. Right? that kind of sift through the Bible. No, there's nothing wrong with this book. No, I it in a good way. But see, you go to Bible college, you go to these places, and the Bible is huge, and it's not put together in a systematic theology. God tells us actual history. He tells us His dealings, and as we observe these things, and as He speaks about the why He did what He did, or when He just tells us what He did, we are trying to sift out the various... Nuances of who God is and the way he works with man through these things. And the way that that's helpful to us is because this is what it says about Jesus. You know, in time past, God spoke to us through the prophets in many times and many portions. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. John chapter one says that, that uh, 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 no one's seen God at any time, but here's Jesus and he has revealed him. He has manifested who God is to us in living person. And so where the creeds and the, the systematic theologies fall short is that we are trying to separate all these different truths into one little list. And as you separate them, trying to throw them all back together, they don't seem to fit all the time. Whereas when God is just revealing himself to us through history, through the Bible, through the story, well, his revelation, he's putting it into a package where not all these things are explicitly stated but yet observed and the mixture is left unverbalized and our minds to try to grasp these things we want to be able to harness them for ourselves but it's like trying to grasp the wind you can't do it and so uh, there is a certain benefit to having a systematic theology because we can say listen God is good. And we can list all the different places in the Bible where it's taught, where it's explicitly said, and where it's been demonstrated. But yet the harm is is that we're trying to take something that's too big for words and reduce it to something that we can quantify and express. And, and God doesn't fit in our boxes. And that's the scary thing about God. We want to be able to know. And the more places you go, the more people you deal with, um, the more these challenges come. I was going to give some examples. I'm not going to go there. Especially with my recording.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <coughs> um, we'll save that for question and answer time one-on-one maybe. All right. So, so the first thing is we're, we have to just accept it is what it is. And somehow learn to live with the tension of not having resolution. If I can give another example for this, 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 this desire we have for this. Um, there was a, a, a Christian drama ministry that I traveled with for three years. And there was this one particular 40 minute presentation that we did that was different than any other. Before the kids came into the auditorium we would already be out on stage, <coughs> frozen in a position.
1: Oh boy.
2: And the kids would come in and th- there we'd be. <laughs> a whole group of us frozen into a position, forming a picture. They didn't know what we were doing. They didn't know what was coming. But I tell you what, normally when the kids came in, they would just kind of little chatter and talk. And then the, the, the principal would come up from the school and he would start. And, and they would have their little song and the parents turn it over to us. and then. Yeah. But this time, People come in, it's uncomfortable. There was no beginning. I mean, what are they doing already there? I mean, is it already started? And so people come in. They didn't know what to do with it. And then at the end of the program, we went back into a freeze. It was tough in large schools. You're on your knees and you're on this hard stage and you're waiting for all the kids to get out of there. But you know what? They left just as quiet as they came in because we hate not having closure. You're reading a good book. We were reading Grace's book recently, and um, we didn't want to put it down because we wanted to know what was happening. And no matter what chapter you ended on, you didn't feel like you could happily go to bed because there was some other cliffhanger waiting. What's going to happen? And, and, and we were working on another book right before we left for vacation. We're like, make sure you get the book because we don't want to wait a month to find out what's happening. We We want closure. We want to know what's happening. We want the end of the story. Now, in the mercy of God, He's given us the end of the story. Amen. Um, And so we don't have to wonder about that, but but trying to figure out all the pieces along the way, it's hard for us to accept. I I also remember being at the Promise Keepers. There was, uh, for those of you too young to remember, uh, probably about 20 years ago, there was a whole movement where they were trying to encourage men to be Christian men, and they would have these rallies where they filled football stadiums full of men, And uh, there was these times where there was, I remember this one guy who was a speaker and he was, he was really hitting home on a particular topic and people started to clap. And he stopped them. He said, stop, don't clap. Just hear what I'm telling you. You need to know this. And, and, and it took like 10 times, for don't clap because somehow in the clapping, we feel like, okay, that, that was good. Now let's move on. And he wanted the point to stick with us. And it was uncomfortable. We feel that way sometimes at church. You know, the kids get up and say their verse or whatever, and or someone sings a song and, and we all want to clap and you know, but it's not it, it, questioning when it's appropriate, when it's not, and all that stuff. But but we have a desire to wrap it up nice and tidy. It's in us. God made us orderly people. He's orderly, and yet he's too big for us. And he's given us some truths that are that we're never going to wrap our minds totally around, he says, accept it. That's number one. we got to accept it. Number two, um, the temptation for us is to take one of these two truths and own it and look at the other as... Um, to look at one is true and the other is not. Okay? That, in a certain sense, helps us to have that closure that we want. Right? Say, no, no. God loves everybody. He doesn't want anybody. And so we own that. And then we want to explain away the other truths, to deny the other truths, so that we can be happy with what we've chosen. But see, um, someone came to Spurgeon one time and said, how do you reconcile divine election and human responsibility. He said, uh, I don't reconcile friends. They're not enemies of each other. You reconcile enemies. You reconcile those who are in contradiction with each other. He said, they're friends. We're talking about God we may not be able to grasp him, but he is good, he is holy, he is right, he is just. And just because we don't understand it doesn't mean we have the right to stand in judgment of his character or of his actions and say that he's wrong. Right? That's where uh, Paul gets into in Romans 9 where he talks about the clay, speaking to the potter and said, what would you make me this way for? I'm like, hello, you're the clay. He's the potter. Right. I used to have a shirt. I liked it. It said, there is a God. And on the back, it said, and you're not him.
1: <laughs> 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 uh, and
2: that's true, right? So we got to be careful as we, as we look at the scriptures not to feel like we've got to take one truth and pit it against the other. When the Bible speaks of one thing that's true, we got to own it as true and wrestle with it in that moment for what it is. When it speaks of something else, we gotta speak, We got to accept that as true and wrestle with it and learn to deal with it as it is. Now, the challenge is not to be manipulating the Word of God to make it say what we want it to say.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, this is very difficult. Um, uh, 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 in my own pursuit of trying to... Now, now if you take the creeds as they touch on these subjects, right? Written theological statements of faith. If you take the things that are said and run with them to the final end, you can put words in other people's mouths that they're not saying. And you'll find that other people are doing the same to you. If you claim and say, but wait a minute, God says he wants all men to be saved. But you're telling me that God has purposely chosen some to be lost and to go to hell. They said, I didn't say that. Or they'll tell you, if you're the one saying, you know, God wants all men to be saved, because they say, well, wait, God says He chose us in Him to be holy and blameless before. He chose us before the foundation of the world. So, he, before you ever believe... Uh, so, in, in light of that then... What God really means when He says He wants all men to be saved, He means all men who are elect. And, you, and, and then you, but well, that's not what the Bible says. And you're both right. We're putting words into others, we're putting words and thoughts upon God that He doesn't say. Now, how can God say that He chooses and yet also waits for others to have a free choice to accept and believe? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And here's the thing: if anybody tells you they know, they're lying. Now, now, now. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Okay, we want to take we want to take a look at some at some scriptures here. I don't want to just blab myself, but but you see that the the tension we're in, right? Um, Uh. 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 To say that God calls whoever believes, well, whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. right? Uh, Romans ten thirteen. If you take that, that's not saying God's not sovereign. You're not saying that. But to say that God is sovereign is not saying, well then, you really don't have a choice. How the two can be true at the same time? I don't know. But, but we need to be careful not to be forcing others to try to make them say what they're not saying because the Bible's not saying that for example let, 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 uh, let, let, me, let me we'll come back to these this is the general foundation now we need to go into the actual scriptures and let's see where this tension comes from okay uh, why is it that we say that these are irreconcilable teachings right uh Let's go back to. I had this in Ephesians 1. Let's take a look at Ephesians 1 4 again. I, I, sorry, I know you were there and you left it, but. <coughs> just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. This verse says, speaking of those who are believers, right? Ephesians is written to believers. Right? Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He says, um, who has blessed us (coughs) In Christ, So he's speaking to believers who are in Christ. And it says, he chose you. Before the foundation of the world, it says, he chose you. Can't argue with that. Now, there are different questions that come upon us as we try to wrestle with this. He's speaking of, now, did he choose us that we would be in him? He said, okay, you, you're going to be in him. You're going to be in him. Exactly how did he choose and what extent? It's not said entirely in this verse. So let's not put words in his mouth, right? Um, At the same time, I have people who say, well, well, God knew who was going to believe, and so he said, I'm choosing you. Uh, But that's putting words in it too. And so either position, if we want to hold them to entirety to try to explain away the tension of the other, we can actually start to put words into the scriptures, which will take us all kind of places. We've got to be careful. <coughs> um, now there's questions we need to ask. Is he saying he chose us to believe? Is he saying he chose us who, you know, it says that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Uh, and and, and those who would like to explain away the sovereignty of God and his divine choosing for salvation say well this is not for salvation this is for the purpose of those who would believe that they might be holding without blame and that's true but is that the intent of the verse you can't explain these things away we got to look at what he says he says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world before there was a single person there was a single sin he had already chosen. He, he chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Take a look at um, 1 Peter 1 2. <clears throat> 1 Peter 1 2. <clears throat> this is the opening of the letter. As usual in these epistles, there was a, 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 a benediction, a blessing, a, a a greeting, and so he says, "It's Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, and all these different places." How does he describe them? Verse two: Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. He calls them elect. Elect means chosen, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, he says, God knew you before and chose you. Some would like to say he knew beforehand that you would believe, and so he chose you. But that's not what the verse says. He doesn't explain how he chose. He tells us he chose. What was the process? What all went into it? We know some things. It says before the foundation of the world. So it wasn't that he was waiting until, okay, um, yeah, see that one over there, see what he's doing? Oh no, not him, not now. Before anything began. It, in fact it says before the foundations of the world, Jesus, Jesus was already ordained to come and die, to provide salvation.
1: Praise the Lord.
2: And uh, yeah, it wasn't a surprise. Nothing took him by surprise. He knew in advance, and yet he was prepared for it. He had a plan for it, and he chose that plan and I know that my God is good and holy and just and right and he wouldn't choose the wrong plan he wouldn't choose an evil plan Amen. I don't know how to explain all the, all, all the answers to the questions that arise from these things um, ok I've already said that <clears throat> Romans 9 now Romans 9 is a very interesting chapter <coughs> As you know, in the middle of the book of Romans, the first eight chapters, he's laying out the gospel. He's talking in the first few chapters of how all men are guilty before God, no matter who they are. And then he starts explaining how God, how salvation comes to sinners by faith in the, in, in the grace and gift of God uh, and so he makes this promise. Those who, by faith, believe it, he reckons them to be righteous, and he's got this eternal plan for them, and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's chapter the end of chapter 8. In chapter 9, Paul goes into this explanation for three chapters about Israel. Well, what happened to them then? They rejected Christ when he was here, and is he done with them? And he starts to address the nation of Israel. But in the midst of it, he has some arguments that, that, that come to bear on our topic of this evening, because... Uh, God says that that <clears throat> He brought a, a blindness to the people of Israel. That in His own sovereign will, He has He has. Imposed this blindness upon the people of Israel and at the same time he turned to the Gentiles offering them the grace of Christ and that, that through the jealousy stirred up into the Jews that they would return to him and he explains how they will return one day they, they were taken out and the Gentiles grafted in but they're going to be grafted back in and, and there's this discussion going on but if you take note in chapter 9 he begins in the first half of the chapter he says um, <clears throat> look at verse 14 and 15 What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. It's got nothing to do with what you do or don't do. God just wills to show mercy and he can do it on whomever he wants. And then he talks about Pharaoh. He says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I raised you up, that I may show you my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. And therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills he hardens. And we do read back there that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now we also read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So even in the example that God refers to here to try to substantiate his sovereignty in dealing with man, he says, listen, I'm going to save and have mercy on whoever I, have mer- I choose to have mercy on. But at the same time, he say, You've got a choice in this matter too. And somehow they're not contradictory. Because as it comes down, it says, well, verse 19. Well, you say to me then, why does he still find fault for who's resisted as well? Well, wait a minute. If you're saying that God chooses some people, and yet you're saying, if you don't choose me, you're going to hell. Why is God finding fault if he's the one choosing and I'm left in the, at, the, at the mercy of his choice? And yet at the same time, what the Bible says is... At the same time the Bible says God's doing some choosing there's also a responsibility as he calls out and those people are refusing to accept and believe of themselves Pharaoh is an example and so yes Pharaoh didn't did not believe he hardened his heart and yes God hardened his heart So uh it, it um do we find fault with God because, hey, no one's going to resist his will? Well, verse 20. But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me this way? Does the potter, doesn't the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make a vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And so he goes into this argument that says God has the right to do whatever he wants. And we are his creation. We have no right to take uh, uh, opposition against him because of what he chooses. And yet, he says, and look at this verse. Yet that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. He, it says, prepares beforehand. Here's this before again. These vessels of mercy that he might, for his own glory, be magnified in the midst of it. But then it says, verse 24, even us whom he called, not the Jews. Oh, wait, no, verse 22 is the one that said it. Sorry. Um... He says, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? It says, These ones who are not the vessels of mercy which are saved, it says they're prepared for destruction. But interestingly enough, it does not say in that verse that God is the one who prepared them for destruction. He's careful to put into verse 23 that God is the one who prepared the vessels of mercy for His glory and salvation, but it doesn't say God prepared those vessels of, uh, of wrath prepared for destru- that are prepared for destruction, that it was Him who did the preparing. Listen, we did all the preparing for our destruction all on our own. We, no one can blame God for being lost. We did it to ourselves. But God has made a way of salvation. How it is that he did some choosing, and yet offers freely? That's where our brain goes limp, you know. I, I, look, just just last week at camp, <laughs> you're in the midst of trying to make sure they understand how they can go to heaven. And yeah.
1: But Mr. Dave, I got a question. Um, <laughs> but if God made everything else, where did God come from? <laughs>
2: How can such an innocent question be so stupendously baffling? Well, you know, he was just always there. We can say that, but what does that mean? He was always there. You know, okay. Well, you know, before everything else, he was there. But but, but wait a minute. But, but how did he get there? But um, okay, so he just he just always was. But how could he always? He had to have started somewhere. <laughs> I want an answer. I can't can't come to the end of it now. Now the fact that I'm here and I'm going to live forever that makes more sense to me, okay? Because I'm already here and I'm already existing. And okay, so when we get to heaven, we're going to live forever with God, which means we'll be there forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. But then that's not the end. And then forever and ever and ever and 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 we have finite minds that think in finite ways. Ecclesiastes says God put eternity into their hearts, and yet. He's left the full comprehension of that beyond our grasp. And, 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 and there, how many ways of God are just like that? And yet not all of them are so contradictory. This just happens to be one. Uh, but it's clear. God has done some choosing as the potter with the clay. And we have no right to challenge His right to do that or His goodness to do that because we just don't understand Him. But He's done that. And He's told us He's done that. Romans 8, in the chapter before, speaking of our salvation, said that whom He foreknew, verse 29, He also predestined, determined beforehand, that they would be conformed to the image of His Son, that they might be firstborn among His brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, He also justified. Whom He justified, these He also glorified. And... This is the pattern of what happens to anyone who comes to faith in Christ, is that he already foreknew them and he's predestined them to be conformed to the image of his Son, and they're as good as already justified and glorified in heaven. It's past tense, and we weren't even born yet. In God's eyes, we're already been glorified. It's past tense, and yet we weren't even thought of here in human terms. But somehow, in God's foreknowing, he predestined this plan of salvation. And he chose us in him. And what that means it's entirely I can't tell you. But he says it very clearly. And we see this in other places in the scripture. But let's take a look at the other side now. That's, that's God's choosing, his election. Um, just a few verses on it. <clears throat> but then <clears throat> we come to the other side. <clears throat> and how do you lay aside these verses alongside the ones we've already looked at? Uh, for example, let's see. I think we've already referred to Second Peter 3.9. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Right? 1 Timothy 2.4. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's why we can't tell people God chose him to go to hell. The Bible does not say that. It actually says God desires all men to be saved and come to knowledge Mm
1: -hmm.
2: of the truth. Can I explain how those two things go? No. Um, Here, First Timothy four ten actually says that He's the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. See, there are some who would tell us, "Then, well, since God only chose to save some." then he couldn't have sent jesus to die and pay for all men's sins because that would mean they would be free to go to heaven then because their sins already been paid for and so uh, but 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 you look at 1st timothy 14 he's the savior of all men especially those who believe 1st john 2 says that he is the propitiation the 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 the, the payment that satisfied god's wrath for all men especially of the believers. Now, I don't know what to do with that. I mean, so so when people tell me, well, then, do you believe in limited atonement or unlimited atonement? That's a theological term. Say, well, see, this is where our systematic theology gets us in trouble. All right? Obviously, if someone's debt was already reckoned to their account... Okay, let's just say I go into Mister Billy's store and I place an order for hundred thousand dollars worth of paint. You'd love me after that, wouldn't you?
1: <laughs> <laughs> not that he
2: doesn't love me now, but I'm sure that would be nice for business, I really right? No. That. So, <laughs> now I go skip town on you after I collect oh. the, uh, the the oh. my check bounces and you're not too happy, right? Now uh, you come after me, and uh, if somehow someone heard about my debt and and and, and paid you for it. And yet you still prosecuted me in the civil courts for the debt that I had. Well, then that, that would be wrong because really it was already satisfied. But if on the other hand, if it was provisional, if someone said, I've got the check and here it is, but, but it, it never got to you, it was provided for but never applied to the account, that's another story, isn't it? Right? So God says that somehow Jesus' death was a propitiation for all men. So somehow we have to understand what that means. If at the same time, he says, if they don't believe, they still have to suffer in the flames of hell forever. Mm-hmm. Somehow it was provided for all men. But only applied and reckoned to the account of those who believed. And so when we try to pinpoint each other into our theological creeds, we can try to push each other into corners that that we don't need to we're starting to add to the Bible or take away from verses just for the sake of our creeds and to feel comfortable. I don't know how to explain that. But somehow he makes these statements and they are true. So he, he, he says that he's not willing for any to perish. He wants all men to be saved. So we have verses like John 3.16. For God so loved the world and the world is not believers or the elect. It's the world. Everyone that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever
1: Believe in. believes
2: in Him shall not perish, mm. but have everlasting life. Amen. Right? It says very clearly then, right? Uh, John 3, 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. But what does the next verse say? Right? John three eighteen. <coughs> Notice that one. Uh... He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because God has chosen him for wrath. No, that's not what it says. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So God condemns people because they do not believe. He's given them a responsibility and a choice to make to trust in Christ. If they don't, they will be lost because they have not chosen Christ. At the same time, God has chosen us in him. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to his son, to the image of his son. And so we have these two truths laying side by side. You know, God makes the command, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Uh, uh, the thing that, that <clears throat> would not make sense is if we were to say because God has done some choosing that there's not really a choice out there for men. Because um, I mean, if you, if you went to school and you saw one of the basketball players holding up uh, the lunchbox of a midget I don't think they call them midgets anymore. Sorry, a small person, a little person, a little person,
1: <clears throat>
2: um, right? I'll cut that out. And so, and so, and so, here he's holding it up in the air, like, "Come on, reach out, get it, get it, get it!" And, and and here's the kid trying to jump up and barely getting past his waist to try to reach it. We would say that's bullying, and yet we want to say, I'm not saying we, right? There are there are those who want to say, "No, now listen," because the Bible says, "Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved." That therefore, for God to say, "I've chosen," means that God's over there saying, "Okay, now you're not allowed to accept this, but go ahead, jump. Just jump. Oh, you're not going to jump? Well, okay, fine. We're going to put God in the same camp because we want to. We want to. We want to feel comfortable with the doctrine we've chosen. And, and but what do we do to the character of God?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, uh, So we got to be careful. We got to be careful. Now, the the, the interesting thing is, and I know my time is going to run out here. There's a few verses where you see both at the same time in the same verse, right? For example, John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So God says, okay, I've got certain people for you, and they're going to come to you. But if anyone who comes, I'm not going to cast you out. Well, are they two different groups of people? Well, no, we see God's choosing and man's choosing coming together. In the salvation of an individual. Notice uh, Second Thessalonians 2:13. Now, I I first was looking at this verse and was going to put it under the category of election. Second Thessalonians 2:13. we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit. Wait a minute. And belief in the truth. (laughs) He chose you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit. The spirit set you apart and belief in the truth. Isn't that beautiful? Explain that. <laughs> um, but it's there. It's there. So, okay. I, I, I know that there's a lot more verses we can go to, but I, I've taken a lot of time, and I, I'm sorry that...